children come back. There's no one back there. There's no K through five. Please join us. Thank you. Good morning. (laughs) This morning we are going to be in Romans 9, 1 through 5. I am speaking the truth in Christ. I am not lying. My conscience bears me witness in the Holy Spirit that I have great sorrow and unceasing anguish in my heart. For I could wish that I myself were accursed and cut off from Christ for the sake of my brothers, my kinship according to the flesh. They are Israelites, and to them belong the adoption, the glory, the covenants, the giving of the law, the worship, and the promises. To them belong the patriarchs, and from their race, according to the flesh, is the Christ, who is God over all, blessed forever. Amen. Am I on, Bill? Good morning, guys. How are you all doing this morning? Um, I know that Jennifer said that it's a little bit lighter today, but I'm really excited that you guys are all here. Um, There might be people that are uh, listening online as well, but um, I'm happy that you guys are here this morning. If you're you're missing Pastor Jonathan, he and his family are uh, in Europe right now taking a much-deserved vacation. Um, Ava's going to college, and so I think that this was a cool opportunity for them to to go and do something fun as a family. So, um, you know, pray for their rest together um, as they are enjoying the time over there. And I've seen the pictures on Facebook. It looks like it's uh, it's really cool um, where they're at right now. Um, so we are moving into the fourth section of Romans. So we've been chapters one through eight um, for the past several months. And um, just as kind of a recap, we, we've, we've heard about Paul talk about... Um, our separation through sin um, from Christ and God, um, and then how through Jesus um, He came and saved us from that sin, and that we're now adopted heirs um, to God through Jesus. And over the next several weeks, we're going to be getting into you know I think that what a lot of people think is some pretty heady um, scripture, but really what Paul is talking about is God's sovereignty over humanity. And so when we finished chapter 8 last week, the the key takeaway was that nothing can separate us from God's love, and no one or nothing can undo what God has done for us through Jesus Christ. We've been going back and forth. Um, Hopefully, if you're in a small group, you've been um, studying along with us. But, um, you know, kind of the way that we've set this up is that um, we'll preach about um, part of the passage on Sunday, and then in your small groups or in your personal reflection time um, during the week, you can go through the next section. Um, I hope that last week you had an opportunity to kind of do the review of chapters 7 and 8, but I want to give a quick PSA because if you're looking at the the resources out on the website, you'll notice that there's no questions for the next four weeks, Um, and that was intentional. We know that, you know, school's getting out, people are taking vacations, might be harder for small groups to get together, so we don't want anybody to miss anything. So um, really what I would say is if you are going to meet, I encourage you to meet. Um, it doesn't have to be a study, but if you do, maybe just study um, the, the same verses that we're talking about on Sunday. Um, and more than anything, just, just continue to get together. All right, so what we're going to see here is that we transition from chapter 8 where Paul was just in complete joy and adoration about, you know, our adoption into God's family and does a complete 180 to 
his sorrow and anguish. And chapters 9 through 11, Paul must answer this important question. If God is sovereign and calls his chosen ones to faith in Jesus Christ, as demonstrated in Romans 8, why do so many of God's chosen people in the nation of Israel still remain in unbelief? And he's going to go through this over the next several chapters. We're going to be looking at the first five verses of chapter 9 today, um, which kind of provides an introduction to the rest of the chapter. Um, Many times in the New Testament letters, you'll see these introductory sections, um, and sometimes I think we have a tendency to just breeze through those and think, oh, it's just like a preamble or, you know, it's a greeting or a salutation or whatnot. All scriptures God breathes, and there's so many truths to unpack here in these five verses, and so you know, we'll be focused on Paul's anguish towards his fellow Israelites this morning and that they're unsaved due to their rejection uh, of Jesus Christ as their Messiah. So before we get started, let me, let me pray. Uh, gracious Heavenly Father, thank you so much um, for this day. Lord, thank you for um, allowing us to wake up and breathe the breath that you've put in our lungs. Um, Lord, I just pray that as we dive into your word this morning that um, the Holy Spirit works in this place, and that the words that come out of my mouth um, bring glory to you, Lord, and understanding, and um, that we will know new truths about you um, and grow closer to you through it, Lord. Pray it in Jesus' name, amen. All right, so um, we're going to start, like I said, in Romans 9, uh, verse 1. And the first verse says, um, I'm speaking the truth in Christ. I am not lying. My conscience bears me witness in the Holy Spirit. So, Paul first starts out by saying, I'm speaking the truth. I mean, has he not been speaking the truth up to this point? Or, you know, why, why this, this emphasis? Um, it's not like Paul's been lying to us or anything all this time. Um, and then he adds, in Christ. So, he, in, in essence, he's calling on Christ himself to bear witness to the fact that he's telling the truth and what he's about to say. And Paul makes a, a supporting statement in 2 Timothy 4-1, through 1, and so we'll, we'll read that. Um, he says, Did I have the wrong verse? I charge you in the presence of God and of Christ Jesus, who is to judge the living and the dead, and by his appealing and his kingdom. And so he's saying that, you know, in front of Christ, Christ is the judge. He's the ultimate judge. And so by calling his name, he's essentially saying, you know, in Christ, I'm going to um, say this in front of him, which I definitely cannot be telling a lie here. But that's not enough. Now he says, my conscience bears me witness. So our conscience is really what distinguishes, you know, when we start to, start to think about what's, what's right or wrong, um, it's kind of like that little voice in your head that, you know, might, you know, make you question whether or not what you're doing is the right form of action. And um, I wanted to share when I was uh, when I was in probably middle school, um, my parents had gone away for a um, like a outing with their friends for a night or something. And my my sister and my friends were were at home and they had left us food to eat and. <laughs> And the food was not what we wanted, right? So I was like, well, we really wanted pizza. And they didn't let it, left us pizza. So 
my mom left her purse there, and I was like, oh, okay, here, let, let's see if mom left any money behind. Um, and so she did. There was a $20 bill in there. And so I called, I called Domino's, and we ordered a pizza. And I knew, I knew, like, this is wrong, but, you know, got the best of me. So we ordered this pizza, eat the pizza, and then we're like, well, what do we do with the evidence, right? Like, we can't just leave this, this box behind. And, and so my friends and I had this great idea that there was this path that went between neighborhoods. It was like a bike path that went through a field. And so we ended up taking this box and just throwing it into the, I mean, there's so many different layers of stupidity here, but we threw this box into the field and left it behind. And, and so we thought that we were super smart, you know, go to bed that night, my parents came home. Next morning, my mom, when I woke up, she says to me, she's like, hey, uh, do you have anything to tell me? And I'm like, this is nuts. Like, how would she possibly know? I mean, this is before credit cards or anything like that. There's no evidence. And she ultimately gets me to tell her what happened. And I was like, how did you know? She's like, you're an idiot. I went on a walk this morning, and I found this box in the field. And I'm like, who throws a box in a field? And then she looks at the box, and it's got our address on it. <laughs> so when, you're, when your conscience is telling you something, it's probably a good time to listen. So <laughs> all kidding aside, um, what Paul is saying here before he says these statements is he's saying, I've weighed this against my conscience, too. Um, I've, I've waited in front of Christ. I've waited against my conscience. And then, if that's not enough, he, he adds a fourth layer. He says, in the Holy Spirit. So now he's appealing not just to the second, but also the third person of the Trinity, the Spirit of Truth. So Jesus describes the Holy Spirit as the Spirit of Truth in John uh, 14. So let's go there real quick. Uh, verses 16 and 17, he says, And I will ask the Father, and he will give you another helper to be with you forever, even the Spirit of truth, whom the world cannot receive, because it neither sees him nor knows him. You will know him, for he dwells with you and will be in you. So Paul's affirming all this with his conscience, with Jesus Christ, and with the Holy Spirit as his witnesses, that he's going to tell this truth no matter how inconvenient or uncomfortable it is to his audience. So if we go into verse 2 now, um, in Romans 9, he says, that I have great sorrow and unceasing anguish in my heart. So next we're starting to understand why, why Paul is belaboring this point and telling this truth. He's going to get to this truth. But he starts with his anguish. I have great sorrow. His sorrow is about those who are without Christ. Specifically, he'll get into this, um, his fellow Israelites. This isn't Paul just being a little mopey or depressed about this. He says he has great sorrow. In Greek, the word for great is megas. So think like mega sorrow. So it's exceeding, it's immense, it's enormous, like heart-wrenching, heartbreaking sorrow. It's to the point of pain where it's like your innermost being is just suffering and suffering. Jesus used the same word in, in John 16, 21. Um, and he was talking about um, you know, women in labor and the excruciating pain that they feel. And he said, when a woman is giving birth, she has sorrow because her hour has come, but when she has delivered the baby, she no longer remembers the anguish. 
for joy that a human being has been born into the world. And then also in 16 verses 4 through 6, he says, But I have said these things to you, that when, the, when their hour comes, you may remember that I told them to you. I did not say these things to you from the beginning because I was with you. But now I'm going, now I'm going to him who sent me, and none of you asks me, where are you going? But because I have said these things to you, sorrow has filled your heart. So this is like an immense, imagine Jesus, you're a disciple of Jesus, you're one of the 12, and he says to you, I'm leaving you. And you're like, but your, your ministry's not done, I don't understand. These guys were, they gave up their entire lives to follow Jesus, and they were being told, I'm, I'm not going to be here with you physically anymore. So that's the type of sorrow that Paul is talking about here. But then he adds to drive this home that it's unceasing grief. So it, it's not going away. It's constantly with him. This isn't something that is a fleeting emotion or it's coming and going. It's constantly with him. I don't know if you've ever felt strongly about something that really matters. Um, I, I would reflect on, you know, I, I have this part of my personality when, you know, I have an argument with somebody or a disagreement, um, and I'll, I'll say things that I don't mean. I'll think about that for like 24 to 48 hours, and it will just stew inside of me. And some people are not like that, and they can just have a conversation and be done with it, and they move on to the next thing and not be like that. But that's, that's kind of the closest thing that I can think of in my own personality that I think of how Paul is feeling right now. Um, it's just not something that I can close the door on until I've just really reflected on it personally. But he's saying that it's essentially continuously eating him up. And to end it, he says, in my heart. And so he wants you to understand that it's not, it's not a surface-level thing. It is, it is something deep in his soul, deep in his core. This is a type of spiritual anguish that's not something that can't be manufactured. I think that it's, it's something that only God can put on your heart. Um, I mean, I honestly don't feel like I've experienced this kind of a perspective for the unlost in my life the way that Paul does. I mean, if just thinking about it, um, the anguish that he's feeling for these people um, is just immeasurable. I don't think that we think about things necessarily from an eternal perspective as often. I don't know about you, but I wake up every day and, you know, I go about my list of tasks and try to control outcomes that I've got no control over. And um, all the while, God is putting me in front of people that he could use me to be a spiritual impact in their life. And I mean, if I'm being honest, I don't think about that, the gravity of that, as often as I should. But Paul does. And I mean, he, his sorrow here is so Christ-like um, look at Matthew 9, chapter, or chapter 9, verse 36. When he saw the crowds, he had compassion for, him, for them because they were harassed and helpless like sheep without a shepherd. Jesus is describing their, you know, these people that are lost and they don't even know it, right? And this is what this type of compassion that Jesus is feeling here is it, it translates into like almost out of his bowels. Like he's it's so deep within him that he just it, it's deep in his soul. Like we would translate that to being something that we feel in the pit of our stomach. Um, have you ever gotten a call from 
uh, you know, from somebody telling you that a loved one of yours is, you know, terminally sick. Um, it, it's a really tough thing to, to digest. When my, my dad, who he's been passed since 10 years, um, since he went back to the Lord. Um, and, but I remember when my parents called me and told me that he had terminal cancer. There's, there's just nothing like that feeling um, of, you know, you have this deep love for somebody and then, you know, you have nothing that you can do about it. It feels very helpless and, um, and challenging. And that's how Paul is feeling here. So the thing is, is that he, he knows that he is in a right relationship with God through Jesus Christ and he's going to spend eternity, but he doesn't, he doesn't stop um, being anguished for his closest friends and family who are not committed to following Jesus. It's, it's the heart of Christ that we love other people. We don't know who God's elect are and who the non-elect are. We're just called to go and, and share the gospel with everyone. And I'm not, I'm not the most outgoing person in the world. I mean, I'm getting better as I, as I age, but this type of a thing, especially with strangers, is like something that would not be easy for me to do without you know, some, some specific effort. Um, but feeling compassion for everyone we interact with allows God to open doors that we have the opportunity to walk through. And you know, it's our responsibility, our calling, to walk through those doors. And I know that there's people that we, we disagree with or you know, maybe they have different political views or they have you know, just different different ideals, we, those things don't really matter to God. God is only worried about the internal significant, eternal significance of that person's soul. He doesn't know or care about the politics. He doesn't know or care about their, he just loves them. Um, he's seeking out the lost. And I mean, the crazy thing, he's using us as a vehicle in his salvation plan. That, that to me is like one of the most unbelievable truths in the world that he would use us as a part of his plan um, for salvation. All right, so moving on to, to verse 3 here. Um, go back. Glad I bookmarked these because I'm jumping around a bit. Um, okay, so verse 3 says, um, For I could wish that I myself were accursed and cut off from Christ for the sake of my brothers, my kinsmen according to the flesh. All right, so now this is where Paul is really saying, like, I'm, I'm broken for my people. He starts out with four, which basically tells, I mean, if you see this in your Bible, when it goes for something, he's basically about to tell you why in the past couple of verses that he has um, this unceasing and extreme sorrow. For I wish that I myself were accursed and cut off for Christ. I mean, Paul knows that this is something that isn't going to actually happen to him. Um, you know, it's a little bit of a of, of a statement that he knows that he can never be separated from God, because we just talked about that in chapter 8. Jonathan preached on this last week. If we look at, uh, at Romans 8, um, 35, it says, um, who shall separate us from the love of Christ? And then in, in verses 38 and 39, he goes on to say, um, for I am sure that neither death nor life nor angels nor rulers nor things present nor things to come nor powers nor height nor depth nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. So he knows, he knows that his salvation is set. 
but there's still so much anguish going on inside of him for, for his people that are, at this point, separated from God um, for all of eternity. He uses this word accursed, which in Greek, Greek is uh, an anathema, and it means to be damned or to be doomed to destruction. So we're literally talking about hell. We're talking about, you know, being plunged into the lake of fire and brimstone and suffering the weeping and gnashing of teeth. I mean, the, the complete fierceness and unmitigated wrath of God in hell is what Paul is saying that he would take on for his fellow people if they could know Christ. And to be accursed, Paul references this elsewhere in Scripture, um, and it's reserved for people who are false teachers or who, dis who distort the gospel. So take a look at, at Galatians um, 1, 8 through 9. And Paul says, But even if, if we or an angel from heaven should preach to you a gospel contrary to the one we preach to you, let him be accursed. And we have said before, so now I say it again, if anyone is preaching to you a gospel contrary to the one you received, let him be accursed. And that, that is, uh, that's a pretty damning, uh, damning because that's what it means, but it's a, it's a damning statement, right? Um, you know, Paul is saying basically that that's the worst possible thing that you could do is to be a false witness for Christ. And I, to be honest with you, that's why I, I have a lot of nervousness coming up and talking about the Bible, because I don't want to get it wrong, right? I don't, there's such a weightiness to making sure that the, you know, the, the representation of what is written here in Scripture is actually accurate. And that's why, I mean, just, you know, so you guys know, the, the pastors, we, we meet and challenge each other on things that we may disagree with, because it's, it's life-giving. It's, it's making sure that we're protecting ourselves and you. Um, so that we're not saying things that are out of out of place. Apologize, I touched this, and now all right. So Paul even adds and 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 cut off from Christ to the end of that statement. In case people didn't completely understand the significance of all this, he knows. It's not possible for him to be essentially um, removed from this, but he's doubling down on the despair that he feels. This is why he said in verse 1 what he did, that he's telling the truth in Christ, my conscience bearing witness in the Holy Spirit. Because to say something like this, to reflect on something like this, it, it's almost as though you, know, you would think, like, come on, man, you're not, you're not really that passionate about this. But he was. But why does he do this, right? Um, for I could wish myself were accursed and cut off from Christ for the sake of my brothers, my kinsmen according to the flesh. He's talking about his fellow Jews. And remember, remember that Paul, Paul is a Jew. He, he's like a super Jew. Like he, he essentially, <laughs> he was extremely learned. And he, he was essentially a Pharisee who before, um, before God changed his heart, he was... He was murdering Christians um, because he was so passionately against um, the gospel of Jesus Christ. But, you know, God revealed himself to him and showed him the truth about Jesus, and, and Paul became, like, the super missionary of all time. Um, so 
but he loves his people deeply, right? He, it's not like he transitioned into a believer in Jesus and then he doesn't have any compassion anymore for the people that he spent his whole life with, learning, eating, loving, um, you know, for him to say that he'd be plunged in the fires of hell on behalf of his countrymen just so that they could drink from the river of life is an unbelievable statement. And like I said earlier, I don't, it, it pains me to say this and admit this, but I don't feel like I spend a lot of time feeling like or acting like Paul does in this case. I'm often selfish and prideful, caught up in my own life, more than I wish to confess. Um, but thank God I can repent of that and, and grow in my relationship with God through that repentance and experience the compassion that Christ has for all of us. We all have to continue to make these baby steps. We must be looking for opportunities that God gives us to share his truths with those around us. Who do you have in your life that you've been praying for that you think um, doesn't know Jesus? Or who, who might you start praying for that doesn't know Jesus? I mean, are there family members, your children, um, lifelong friends, neighbors? I'm sure that we all have people that we're close enough to that it wouldn't be an absurd thing to speak the gospel to them and tell them, hey, you know, I, I just want to let you know about my Jesus. Um, I, like I said, it's hard, it's hard for me. I don't do that enough, so I'm not standing up here saying like I'm this perfect model of how you should behave, but I know that we're called to do that. I mean, there's likely people that have confessed to be believers in our lives that don't show any fruit of that saving life. And we can't be so naive to take their confession at face value. We've got to observe their behaviors and discern whether they embody the fruits of the Spirit or not. Because if they don't, we shouldn't be, we shouldn't be judgmental about it. We shouldn't say, oh, well, they're, just, they're just not doing what they said that they do. We need to continue to search for doors that God opens that we can use those opportunities to preach the gospel in their lives in different ways so that God can take that seed and grow it. God's always working for his good. We know that that is 100% true. And like I said, if he, if he wants to use us to do that, um, that's amazing. And I think that, you know, we, we talk a lot about kind of the way that we uh, think about missions here at TCC. And um, at the last TCC Connect, um, Jonathan had me actually talk about this section of kind of our ministry, and I kind of flipped it on its head. I usually talk about global missions first, and then local missions, and then what we do for benevolence within the church, but I flipped it, because really, it's an inside-out ministry, right? We need to care for the people that are closest to us, around us, first, and because we have the most influence on those people, right? I'm not saying that we, we don't, you know, go out into the local community and help, and we don't go out you know, to Costa Rica and help, but there's people right here in our lives that we desperately need to have these conversations with and pray that God's going to fulfill um, our desire for them to be saved. And we don't know, but we just need to take the opportunity. And we need to do it for the rest of our lives until God gives us our last breath. We need to have a heart like Paul is displaying in this chapter. 
It's not only important to know God's truths in our lives, like you can know everything about what's written here in Scripture, but you have to also be willing to continuously showcase a heart like Jesus has. And we're called to do both. So moving on to chapter, uh, sorry, verse 4 here in, uh, in Romans 9. It says, uh, They're Israelites, and to them belong the adoption, the glory, the covenants, the giving of the law, the worship, and the promises. So he starts by saying, they're Israelites. Um, you know, it may seem obvious now that we've been talking about it a little bit, but he's pointing back to the end of verse 3 where he's saying, you know, the kinsmen according to the flesh. Those are the Israelites. He wants there to be no mistake that he's talking about his countrymen. Um, to them belong this laundry list of privileges that God has bestowed on them. And Paul goes on to enumerate every single one of them. So first is the adoption. God refers to the nation of Israel as his firstborn son. Referring to God's care and provision for the nation of Israel like a son. So look at Exodus 4.22. says, They shall say to Pharaoh, Thus says the Lord, Israel is my firstborn son. And then in Hosea... Chapter 11, verse 1, it says, When Israel was a child, I loved him, and out of Egypt I called my son. So this is scriptural evidence, and there's tons more if you read through the Old Testament, of you know, God looking at um, Israel as a privileged nation separate from others. Um, and I don't know about you guys, I am actually a firstborn son, and so... Um, but this applies to firstborn children, I think, in general. But like, there's just kind of like a different you get treated a little bit differently by your family. I mean, my mom still dotes on me differently than she does my sister. Um, God treats the nation of Israel differently than he does other nations too. He showed far more care, if you read through the Old Testament, for Israel than he did the Egyptians or the Canaanites or the Assyrians or the Babylonians. They they received special attention all throughout history. The second one is the glory. So, God revealed himself to Israel, made himself known. He doesn't do that with, with anybody else. He, he made himself known to Israel. Um, and it's not just God being good to Israel. He showed them his glory, his full glory. Moses coming down, from, I, mean, John, I think Jonathan talked about it last week, Moses coming down from uh, you know, receiving the Ten Commandments, and there was like this, this glory about him you know, the, the, because he was in the presence of God. Um, Nobody else was able to experience that. And, and the gospel, the gospel was prophesied all throughout the Old Testament. That was not made available to any other nations. The third one that he talks about is the covenants. God entered into a personal relationship with Israel over and over again. There's the Abrahamic covenant, the Mosaic covenant, the Palestinian covenant, the Davidic covenant. These were times where he pledged himself over and over and promised by his own name, that he would keep his word to them. He didn't do this with anybody else. Fourth is the giving of the law. So, I don't know about you, but when I hear about the law, it seems like it almost was like a constraint. But if you think about it, God gave them scripture. Like, he gave them a blueprint for 
you know, how to, to act, um, how to behave, you know, how to govern themselves, how to, you know, the Ten Commandments, how to be morally um, secure, how to commune with him through sacrifice. I mean, what a, what a privilege that, that they were able to know God on such a personal level. Um, the fifth is, is the worship. So the whole sacrificial system, the priesthood, they, they were given this, this you know, ability to commune with God in a way that nobody else could. And this was like a see the future card. Have you ever played Exploding Kittens? There's a see the future card. Um, but it's, it, it's a picture of God's sacrifice of his son Jesus um, on the cross. You know, when, they, when they would go into the Holy of Holies and perform their sacrifices, this was a completely symbolic illustration of what was to come. Christ giving himself as the perfect sacrifice for our sins. All Jewish sacrifices brought forth through ceremony were like dress rehearsals for what would be coming with Christ. The sixth thing he says is the promises, and Tim is going to go um, into this in much more detail next week, so I'm not going to spend a lot of time here, but God made hundreds of pro promises to the Israelites throughout the Old Testament. And again, not given to any other nation. So he mentions two more as we move into the first part of verse 5. He says, to them belong the patriarchs, and from their race, according to the flesh, is the Christ. So the seventh is, to them belong the patriarchs. This references the birth of God's people, the Israelites, through the lineage of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. And finally, and most important of all, from their race, according to the flesh, is the Christ. Think about the fact that Jesus was born a Jew from a Jewish mother. He was born in the Messianic lineage. Um, as promised through King David's bloodline. He was as Jewish as anybody could be Jewish. But yet they still rejected him. See, the heritage of God that he afforded to Israel was separate from any other nation until Jesus Christ. You know, through his sacrifice that Jesus completed, this heritage has been afforded to us now. Um, and I think that that's that's part of why the Jews at that time would have thought that this was such a just crazy out there message. Um, their entire lives, they had been identifying their salvation through the law. And now you've got Jesus Christ coming along and saying, I am the law and I am the way, I am the light. Um, all of those I am statements that we went through in the book of John, even though they had every single advantage, everything afforded to them, they were just blinded by their own humanness in the face of God in the flesh. I know that we all kind of, you know, we might think, oh, well, they, they experienced Jesus first person. Why, why did they reject him? I think it's all those other things. Like, they, this is all that they've known was, you know, the, the, different, um, the different things that they had been gifted and afforded through the heritage of faith um, throughout the Old Testament, and now things are changing. But the last part of verse 5, Christ, who is God over all, blessed forever, amen. You know, so Paul is not shying away from his belief. He's saying the truth, that, that Jesus Christ is the Lord and Savior. And he wraps this up, and he really points to who Christ is, that he's God. He doesn't say, doesn't, you know, 
he doesn't he doesn't try to dance around it, right? He's saying like capital G God. Um, he's not referring to the Father here, but the Son. It's who, not what. There's a relationship with God and the Father through Jesus. He's over all, and that means he's got authority over everything. We all need to grasp onto this, I think, with all of our might, because it's such a hopeful statement or truth that, that we get through Jesus that he's in the middle of everything. I mean, I think we often think about trials and tribulations that he's in the middle of, but he's also in the middle of our celebrations and our blessings. He's sovereign over all. He predetermines everything that's going to happen. Nothing is by chance. And what, a, what an amazing hope for us that and Tim and I were just talking about something this morning, and I've gotten to a point where I, I don't feel concern about things I don't know that are going to come along because, or I don't feel a ton of anxiety about it because, frankly, um, <laughs> frankly, I feel like it's all been predestined. And so God, God is going to do things that bring glory to him and that are for his good. And my dependence on him means that what I do is for his good um, if I'm living in Christ. So Paul is also saying that Jesus should be worshiped forever through all time. He deserves all the glory forever. Amen. So in conclusion, I I want to talk about how this applies to us today here in St. John's County, Florida. I don't know where everybody's at. Um, only God knows. If you're like me and grew up with, uh, grew up in a Christian house with parents who took me to church and um, shared the gospel with me at an early age, um, you might have questions like I did of why it took me until I was in my mid-30s to you know, personally accept Jesus Christ as my savior. I did I hadn't I knew a lot of things, but I hadn't I hadn't accepted him as a need. I remember very vividly um the day I couldn't tell you the actual day, but I, I remember the day where I was to the point of breaking and I got on my knees and I asked for Jesus to save me. And I, I pray that everybody has that moment. But you have to surrender. You have to surrender um, knowing that you can't control anything, that, you know, it's not on you. And again, I think that that's a hopeful thing, but um, I do spend a lot of my time trying to control things in my life still. Um, that's not going away. But we do live in a time in history when we have all the scriptures available to us. Um, you know, we, we have no real excuses at this point. We know that Jesus was born... Um, to the Virgin Mary. We know that he lived a perfect, sinless life. We know that he died for our sins um, on the cross, that he was buried and raised on the third day and ascended to the right hand of the Father. We know that whomever should call on his name will be saved. We know all of those things. So if you're here today and you haven't taken the step to confessing that, to God that you are a sinner and need a Savior, please accept Jesus Christ today. Um, I plead with you to do it today. Uh, don't let another day pass you by where you're not in communion with your Lord and Savior. We can all be reunited with God through Jesus, be grafted into the heritage of faith that the Israelites um, were afforded by committing our lives to Jesus. 
And in doing so, we should put significant priority on sharing the gospel with others. I don't know what could be more eternally significant. Let me pray.